Well, today is the beginning of the Advent season, the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of expectation, repentant expectation. And it's a season of hope. Hope in the Advent, Advent means coming, right? Hope in the coming of the one who has already appeared. It's a time when we are reminded that looking back, looking back with gladness to Christ's incarnation and looking forward with joy to his appearing belong inseparably together. And this is why we find, and we point this out every year here, we find that in the church's readings for this time of the year, you have your more traditional Christmas texts. We will come across them in this season, right? About the infant Jesus and about Mary and so on. And then you also have a raft of texts about the second coming. And often this is puzzling to people. Why is this so? What are these texts and hymns about the second coming doing in the middle, cluttering up the Christmas season? And the point is this, right? The church's instinct here is profound and penetrating. The point is that the first coming of Jesus is the second coming in advance. Right? He comes and brings the kingdom of grace, and he will come and bring the kingdom in glory. His coming at Christmas is the intrusion into this age of the age to come. And thus to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the incarnation of Christ is to yearn and to groan for his coming in glory. And if these two things are torn apart, something is disordered. And Advent is a kind of bracing reminder of this reality. It is the only season the church is ever in. Yes, yes, we have an Advent season for four weeks, but the church is always in this season of looking back and looking forward. Now, we're in the midst of a series on the Lord's Table. And the Lord's Table, that table we've repeatedly seen, is the feast of what we have called the eschatological kingdom, meaning the kingdom in its coming fullness, the consummate kingdom. This is the place, the central place, where we look back and remember, and in the same act, We look forward to eating and drinking with Jesus and the prophets and the patriarchs in the kingdom of God. The shape of the table is the shape of Advent and vice versa. All of that to say that it's fitting that we continue looking at the supper during this Advent season. And today we will do that under the theme of the tree of life. So we'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The garden, the tree, and the city. Or you could call them the first tree, the second tree, and the third tree. I do want to give you a brief word of perhaps caution. This is going to be a a panoramic sermon. Like it's going to be a, a flyover overview of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, tracing one theme. So I hope in that regard it will be helpful. I think the whole story of Scripture is here. 
So first, the garden. The tree of life first appears in the Garden of Eden. Now, we can't unpack or defend all this in one sermon, so let me just briefly assert a a couple of things. Eden was a shadow of heaven itself. It was a sanctuary temple where God and man dwelt in unique, covenant, face-to-face fellowship. Adam was the first priest in the first temple. And later, the tabernacle, we're told, was made by Moses after the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. And that tabernacle had all sorts of Edenic symbolism in it. Symbolism, fruit, trees, and the like. And all of this is made more permanent and more glorious in the temple constructed by Solomon. In the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple... God dwelt, he descended and dwelt in his light and glory in the holy of holies as he does in the highest of the heavens. All of these earthly temples reflect the heavenly temple. And they all point forward to a day when the whole cosmos will be a renewed, indestructible, everlasting, illumined temple. Radiant with the splendor and glory of God himself. So we can thread these themes together. Eden, tabernacle, temple, renewed world. And once we see this, once we see this, it helps to understand, then to go back to the beginning, what was Adam's role in the covenant made with him in Eden? Right, this covenant is sometimes called the covenant of works or the covenant of life. You'll sometimes hear it called the covenant of creation. But here's what it entailed. It entailed that Adam, by his perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience, was to bring himself and his posterity, his descendants, and the lower creation over which he was to exercise dominion, he was to bring all that into communion with God in the highest heavens. He was to enter the Sabbath rest of God, which God himself had entered upon the completion of creation, sitting enthroned as king. In short, Adam was summoned through obedience to obtain what we call eschatological life, meaning life indestructible and eternal in its fullness. Adam was summoned from the beginning to face-to-face fellowship with God in glory in a perfected, transfigured creation where the veil between heaven and earth is torn. He was to move from innocence to glory. What does this mean? Well, it means that Eden, from the very beginning, even before the fall, Eden was ordered to, it was like pointed like an arrow to the age to come, to heaven, to eternal Sabbath glory. Even before sin entered the world, this was the goal for Adam. The new creation was always the goal of the first creation, even before sin. Now, given this, notice that in Genesis 2.9, we're told that in addition to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at which Adam fell... There was a tree of life in the midst of the garden. You also heard it in the Old Testament lesson today. There was a tree of life in the garden. He fell at one tree, but there was another tree called the tree of life. This tree, the tree of life, is a sacrament. 
It's a sign. It's a pledge of communion with God in glory. It's a sacrament of eternal life. We can see this even from the narrative of the fall, which was read from Genesis 3. Right? We're told there, now that man has become like God by grasping, by knowing good and evil, but apart from obedience to God, we're told that he's exiled from the garden. Lest he reach out his hand, take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. The tree of life, it seems, would confirm him forever in his rebellion and disobedience. But one thing is clear, the tree of life has to do with confirming or sealing life and living forever. And it's also clear, especially as we read the rest of Scripture, that had Adam obeyed, he would have been able to eat from the tree of life and live forever in glory. Before the face of God, in the highest heavens, of which Eden was a replica. But he sinned, he's driven out of the garden, and then we're told this. God placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back to that tree of life. Right? The tree of life is the sign and the seal of eternal life. And now that we are exiled, getting back to it, and all that it promises will require of man passing under the flaming sword of divine judgment. That's the garden. That's the first tree. So the second point I'm calling the tree, it's the second tree here. And here I mean the tree of the cross. The cross of Christ, this is the deepest logic. You might wonder this sometimes. Why is the cross sometimes called a tree? And it's not just because it's made out of wood. So, for example, after being arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus... Peter and the apostles answer the high priest and the council. This is in Acts chapter 5. And they say this. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Right? And in Acts 10, he says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. Here's Paul, Acts 13. After all was carried out, that was carried out, was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in the tomb. They took him down from the tree. And 1 Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And notice, by his wounds you're healed. So this tree on which Christ was crucified, somehow, through the wounds of the one hanging there becomes the means of our healing, the means of our liberation and life. Now, this idea of the cross as a tree is rooted most profoundly in the curses of the covenant pronounced in Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And here we move close to the heart of the gospel. A man was hung on a tree if he committed a capital offense. Right? It's a sign that he was accursed, that he was cut off from the land of the living, excluded from life. And the shocking thing, though it's lost on us, the shocking thing about the Christian gospel is that it proclaims that Christ was, 
in the eyes of the world, and even legally in God's eyes, just such a cursed man. And yet, something else, something mysterious, something paradoxical is happening in the crucifixion. Paul says this about it in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? The tree of Christ is the tree where the curse is born. Where Christ, the second Adam, the obedient Adam, passes under the flaming sword of divine judgment, thus turning the tree of cursing into the means of blessing for his people. Turning the cursed tree into the tree of life. And so we look at the cross then as a glorious kingly victory. In the eyes of the world, it's a sign that Jesus was defeated. But for us, it's a triumph. And the church has always grasped this paradox. In the second century, Justin Martyr said, The Lord has reigned from the tree. In the 4th century, Augustine said, the Lord has established his sovereignty from a tree. Who is it who fights with wood? Christ. From his cross, he has conquered kings. And there's a great 6th century hymn which puts it this way. It says, that which the prophet king of old hath in mysterious verse foretold is accomplished while we see God ruling the nations from a tree. The tree of Christ's death, the tree of his curse bearing for you and me, the tree on which he was hanged as a condemned man is now for us and for the nations, the tree of life. Finally, then, the city. Now, if everything we've said so far hangs together, then we would expect to see these themes converge in the consummation of all things. Right? If what we said about Eden and what we said about Christ's tree is true, then we'd expect convergence, and we do indeed see just that. The book of Revelation echoes all the way back to the book of Genesis. So let me give you a couple examples. In Exodus and Revelation, I mean, Revelation chapter 2, we hear the promise to the church at Ephesus. Here's the promise to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All the promises to the overcomers are promises of communion with God in glory in a new creation. That's what they all are. All the promises to the seven churches. There's a lot of different imagery, but all of the promises consist of a promise of eternal life in the renewed cosmos. Thus here... The promise to eat of the tree of life is the promise to partake of what was held out to Adam, but which he failed to obtain due to his disobedience. That should be clear enough. And those who conquer in Christ will eat of the tree of life, the text says. Notice this, where? In the paradise of God. Which, by the way, is not a Christianized earth in history. That would be a pale and pathetic shadow of the genuine Christian hope. The paradise of God is not even a mere return to Eden. 
Just imagine you could return the world to Eden tonight. In other words, eliminate all sin, all disease, everything that's happened from the beginning of time, and get us back into the same garden situation that Adam was in. Paul still thinks that that's a situation of corruption, shame, and death compared to the glory which is to come. It would be a pale, weak reflection of the Christian hope. When John writes, you're going to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God, he's speaking not of a mere return to Eden, but of an escalated Eden, a heightened Eden, a glorified Eden, namely the new creation in its full splendor. This is seen in our New Testament reading from Revelation 22. After the final judgment, in the new creation, John speaks of this heavenly city and he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, listen now, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Same tree that was in Eden shows up at the end. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. This is no ordinary tree, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Whatever this tree is, it's not a normal tree. It's a kind of super tree of life, an escalated tree for an escalated Eden. It bears 12 kinds of fruit, and it yields its fruit every month of the year. This is the tree that has brought healing to the nations. So the point is clear again. The tree of life represents the fullness, the plenitude of blessing and life in the new creation. Desire fulfilled, Proverbs says, is a tree of life. And Advent, then, is about the one who in his first Advent, as the second Adam, turns the tree of cursing into the tree of life. Advent is about the one who bears the flaming sword of judgment, restoring access to the tree of life and thus to eternal heavenly life the life of God himself in everlasting, indestructible glory. So in closing, I'll make two applications. We'll call them the Christian life and the table. First, the Christian life. If the cross is the tree of life, that is shorthand, beloved, for saying that Christ himself is the tree of life. After all, the tree is a sacrament, pointing us to eternal heavenly communion with God in Jesus Christ. And if all Christians are little Christ, partaking of Christ, the tree of life, even now, then we have the privilege and we have the calling to mediate the life of God into the world. That is, in Christ, you can be trees of life. Proverbs 11 says this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. As little trees of life, we bear fruit. Partaking of Christ, the tree of life, we become trees of life that bear fruit, and we can bear fruit which wins souls. Proverbs 15, 4 says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. 
Our words can be trees of healing and life. We eat, we commune with Christ crucified, the tree of life, and we become instruments of life and healing in the world. Secondly, then, the table. On that table is a depiction of the cursed one. Right, The broken body, the poured out blood, hung on the tree at Calvary. And yet that cursed flesh and blood is for us the source and the fount of everlasting life. That's the flesh and blood which passed under the flaming sword of God's just wrath and curse that we might have free and unhindered access to the tree of life that was held out to Adam. There you have the tree of Christ's cross given to you as the tree, not of cursing, but the tree of life. There you have the pathway forward to the escalated Eden of the new creation. What Genesis promised in the tree of life and what Revelation consummates in its images of the tree of life, this table communicates to us even now. It's at the center of the world. It's at the center of the biblical story, right? What Genesis promised to Adam, what Revelation shows us is fulfilled in the new creation, that is given to you there because that is the tree of cursing turned into the tree of life. And yet, as we've seen throughout this series, these are gifts given to faith, meaning given to repentant sinners, right, to those in the process of becoming overcomers, of conquering. Listen to Revelation 22.14, which was also read this morning in this context. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Right? Nobody enters the city simply because they come to church or their parents were Christians. You have to wash your robes. Yes, sanctification is God's work, but we are actively engaged. So much so that you can get language like this wash your robes, wash them in the blood of Christ. Make them white with good deeds by the fruit of God's grace. This is necessary, John says, to have the right to access the tree of life. To enter the gates of the city. Now, if this is so, if this is so of the coming tree of life, then it's profoundly fitting that the church requires faith and repentance, the washing of our robes, so that we might eat of that tree of life. You see the deep logic here? You're not getting that eschatological consummate tree of life without washing your robes. Therefore, we wash our robes before we come to this tree of life. Because that tree is the coming tree of life in advance. Advent is here. It is the only season the church has. She looks backwards, and she sees the second Adam has appeared to undo the curse, to render the obedience the first Adam failed to render, 
and in this manner to turn the cursed tree into the tree of life. And she looks forward. And she sees that by this means he will bring all his chosen race to glory, to the new creation, to the tree of life in the paradise of God. Christ reigns from that tree for the healing of our wounds, for the healing of the nations, for the healing of the whole creation, which is destined to become a cosmic temple, an escalated Eden lit up with the glory of the triune God. Joy to the world. The way to the tree of life, to the holy city, is now opened. Amen.